Well, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you've been part of this study, then you're going to see that Paul is about to make a major adjustment in his style of writing. It is so significant and so unusual that some have thought that these next few chapters might have originally been part of a different letter, perhaps even come from what was known as the severe letter, which we have no record of, just Paul's comments here in this book that he did indeed send it. And, uh, <clears throat> but almost assuredly, these chapters are indeed Paul's continuation of the letter that we've been studying in the first nine chapters. And Paul has laid a foundation carefully. He has spoken in great detail about things like his love for Christ and for the church. He's talked about the power of the gospel, our mission to share the good news of Christ. He's talked about how suffering will come when we share the gospel. He's talked about the necessity of an eternal spiritual focus versus a temporal physical one. He's talked about personal integrity in ministry. And most recently, in the last two chapters we looked at, chapters 8 and 9, he wrote about the great joy that we have in participating and being a part of the Lord's work. He ended chapter 9 by saying, We thank God for His indescribable gift the free gift of His love and His forgiveness of sin, the promise of a, hope, uh, of a home in heaven, and the hope that we have in this life. And now that Paul has set the stage, it's on this foundation of truths that he very firmly and directly answers his critics. Thus the title of our study today, Biblical Self-Defense. Remember, the book of 2 Corinthians is largely a defense of Paul's ministry. He birthed the, Christ, the Corinthian church at great cost and sacrifice to himself. And since leaving them, a number of dangerous, conniving, proud, and greedy false teachers claiming to be super apostles have weaseled their way into the church. And it's through their persuasive speech and through their attractive leadership personalities, which would not have been uncommon in the metropolis of Corinth at the time, they have begun to convince the church of a modified gospel. They changed the truth of what Jesus Christ taught. And they have called into question both Paul's message and his ministry. And as Paul points out more than once, their attack on him is really an attack on Jesus Christ and the gospel itself. And in the verses that we're about to read today, you'll hear Paul address a number of the core accusations that were made against him. But the question that grips our study today is, how does this apply to us? How do these chapters affect and change for the better the way you and I live in the 21st century? Now, a word of caution as we work through these chapters, we have to be careful. There are verses here, as you'll see, that can easily be misunderstood and therefore misapplied. Context is vital. Careful study is vital. Cross-referencing is vital. And one reason this is such a difficult passage is because Paul uses several communication tactics in addressing his critics. We recognize if you had to go to court 
you would choose your words very carefully. He's not only addressing his critics, at the same time he is also correcting and teaching the true church family in Corinth. And he bounces back and forth not only between these audiences, but also in his language, between the use of wisdom and folly, as you'll see as we read through these texts today. We must not confuse the two. I have personally found these three chapters to be the most difficult to wrap my mind around in all of this book thus far. So here are two very deep study principles that we're going to apply today. Number one is do not, I repeat, do not get lost in the weeds. Don't get hung up on specific awkward phrases or words. Instead, study principle number two, focus on the bottom line. I'm going to lean hard on these two principles because there are phrases here and there that I am still not 100% sure exactly what Paul was trying to communicate. And there are times where I'm not sure if he's speaking sarcastically or seriously. But there are also verses in these chapters where Paul pretty much outright says, here's the bottom line. Here's the truth of the matter. This is what we are all supposed to do. And so, those are the verses that we want to grab hold of today and live by. It's from those truths that the surrounding text will make sense, as you'll see. Now, in these three chapters, we're going to find three primary false accusations that were made against Paul. Let me point them out right at the start here so you have some context. Accusation number one is that Paul is lying. His accusers are basically saying you can't trust him. He writes one way and lives another. He's not the same in person. He's hypocritical. And we see this summed up in chapter 10, verse 10. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Accusation number two. Paul is selfish. They're accusing him of being in this for personal gain. He's taking advantage of you. He's burdening you. We find this summarized in chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. When I was present with you, as Paul speaking, and when I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. And there's accusation number three in verse 11. Paul doesn't love you. It hardly goes any lower than that. If these accusations are true, Paul is unfit. He is unqualified to serve as an apostle of Jesus Christ. They said he's lying, he's selfish, and he doesn't even love you. If you have ever been accused of those things, particularly falsely accused of those things, and particularly by a loved one or a friend, then you're going to find very personal counsel in these chapters today. It's one thing to be accused of such things by an enemy. It's another to take them from someone you have loved dearly and sacrificially for years. We can only begin to imagine the great weight of grief that Paul bore as an apostle, as, an, as a leader among many churches, 
by being suspected and nearly rejected as an apostle by the church of Corinth. And yet it was in this trial that God taught Paul some of the most amazing, valuable, life-changing, eternity-impacting lessons. And these are the lessons we want to grab a hold of today and over the next couple weeks. Now because of the nature of this text, and again, I'm not sure there is anything even like it in the rest of Paul's writings, I'm going to read straight through Paul's entire personal defense today, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Now don't panic, I'm not going to preach through all of it. Just going to read through this account. We'll look at just chapter 10 today, but, but reading the text as a whole greatly helps us to better grasp the big picture and the heart of the matter. So follow along as I read. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are, things, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent such persons we also are indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, to reach even as far as you." For we are not overextending ourselves as if, as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors. But with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. So as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. And not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Chapter 11. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. 
For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches, speaking facetiously here. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Again I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do, receive me even as foolish so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, 
often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under uh, Eratas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Chapter 12. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and note that Paul is referring to himself now in the third person, he is so humbled by this experience. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you." For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you, 
through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go. I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. That's an amazing text, isn't it? May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, humble us before Your Word, we pray. Teach us the truth that only Your Spirit can give us. Truths that go far beyond what our small minds and understandings could figure out on our own. Lord, give us wisdom from above. Help us to see the things of this life, especially the trials, the insults, the slanders, the troubles. Help us to see them through the lens of your word. Help us to see them for what they truly are. Give us a spiritual and an eternal view of these things that we might walk through this what life in the flesh but not according to the flesh as Paul said teach us to follow and love and serve and share you well because we know and understand the Lord God we pray this in Jesus name amen all right back to chapter 10 verse 1 let's see what God will teach us today Paul begins his defense of his ministry in the gospel through this carefully chosen phrase. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Let's pause there for a moment. See what's happening here. In the face of painful and wrongful accusations, we must note that Paul begins the weightiest, strongest, firmest defense of himself in the gospel with this heart attitude, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This is what we could call counterintuitive. I love the Google definition of counterintuitive. Contrary to intuition or to common sense expectation, but often nevertheless true. Common sense would tell Paul to hit back as hard as you can. Put up your best defense, make them pay, etc. But that's not what Christ would do. And Paul understands this. It was in Christ's meekness and gentleness that Paul was guided 
through one of the greatest trials in his ministry. There's a reason Paul had to go to Corinth three times. There's a reason he had to write multiple times. And it's because of the deep, deep troubles in the church. But he chose meekness and gentleness like Christ. Meekness is not a word we use very often. Meekness is demonstrated when strength and authority are humbly and patiently restrained. Meekness knows when it's best to willingly and humbly suffer long, even though it has the right and the power to fight back. And this quality of meekness we see is coupled with gentleness in the text. We have the picture here of a very strong arm that moves tenderly and kindly even when provoked. And no one modeled this better than Jesus Christ. You know this. Scripture gives the account of the Almighty Son of God willingly allowing Himself to be tried before men. Fathom that thought. He was mocked, he was beaten, his beard was pulled from his face, a crown of thorns was crushed into his head, ultimately crucified. When he had the authority the whole time to call down a legion of angels to rescue him. But he didn't. And likewise, Paul is an ambassador of Christ as a servant of Christ, bearing the apostolic authority and power of Christ, held back as he meekly and gently dealt with sin. Remember, this is the same Paul who the book of Acts says God was performing extraordinary miracles through his hands. Even at Lystra, Acts 14, the healing of the lame man was so stunning that the crowds immediately burst forth. Do you remember what they said? Surely the gods have come down as men. And the priest of Zeus and the crowds immediately began to worship and offer sacrifices to Paul. And of course, he tore his robe and basically said, what in the world are you doing? He was appalled. He said, we are men just like you. You should be worshiping who? The living God. But in spite of this level of apostolic authority and power, Paul spoke with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Tremendous application there for those of us who God has entrusted authority to in our families, in our workplaces, in the church, and so on. The best authorities are masters of meekness. Allow me to say how much I respect this in Pastor Mark. I would say that meekness is one of his most notable qualities. He has not fought back when I would have fought back. God spared the church, though. <laughs> Praise the Lord for Christ's example of meekness. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, and you haven't seen one of the salt starters in the bulletin, one of our notes, study notes, you can divide the rest of your paper into two columns as follows. Truth lessons and mistakes. 
what to do, what not to do. As we work through the next three chapters this week and the weeks to come, we're going to see that much of what Paul says falls into these two categories. He's teaching by means of these. And it is from this list of scriptural counsel that we easily make life application. All right, continuing in verse 1. Paul said, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Truth lesson number one, maintain spiritual focus. Spiritual focus rightly accomplishes spiritual warfare. And this was key to Paul's effectiveness and his innocence in ministry the same will be true for you and me paul says we live in this body we don't fight back though not with this body not with our own hands not with our own mouth not with our own mind these are ineffective weapons they accomplish no spiritual good paul says we're looking for divinely empowered weapons of warfare because those destroy enemy castles and what are those weapons galatians excuse me ephesians 6 is a dynamite armory you know this let's go there for just a moment ephesians 6 10 to 18. paul says finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might put on the full armor of god so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, that means since that's all true, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We'll stop reading there. Let me just ask, do you have the armor? Do you have all the pieces? You can't fight without it. Walk through the list in your own time, Ephesians chapter 6, and ask, do I have this piece of the armor? Do I have this piece of the armor? And do I know how to use it? Then spend the rest of your life mastering your weaponry. 
This drives home the reminder that we must be students of the Word of God. The first armor mentioned is, is the belt of what? Truth. It's these weapons, these armor pieces that destroy what three things? We go back to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. Those two things. Before you leave this place today and before you re-enter the battlefield, let me remind you of one very encouraging truth. The enemy is guessing. He is speculating. All those who follow his logic are falling for a most faulty conjecture. But don't be deceived, as Paul says in this letter, don't be deceived. Those lofty thoughts challenge the knowledge of God. And if we don't know the knowledge of God, we too may be deceived. Verse 5 gives another point of the battle plan. He says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Here's what strikes me first about this phrase. It does not say what I thought it would have said. Take every thought captive to the doctrines of Christ. Paul already covered the doctrine, the proper theology in the prior phrase, the knowledge of God. Here he points out that there is more than proper thinking in theology. Those thoughts must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Not just the behavioral obedience, but even the thought obedience. Obedience starts on the inside, and it demonstrates itself on the outside. Again, we are compelled to know the Word of God through diligent study so that we can submit our thinking and therefore our living to the thinking and the truth of God. I have to admit, these are very strong words that Paul has given in here and that I'm echoing today. The Apostle Paul is telling us to bank everything on the knowledge of God. Bank everything on the truth of God in His Word. That's a big leap of faith. But did you know that every world religion demands submission of thought? Even the religion of self demands submission to one's own gratifications and opinion. Just look around and you'll see how well that's going for humanity. One of the most core decisions a person must make is who or what to place their faith in. To whom or to what will they submit? Why do I and so many of you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and the knowledge of God that we find in His Word? Because we haven't found anything or anyone better. If you find anyone better than the Creator of the universe, I'm all ears. But thousands of years of history have shown nothing even remotely close to exist. We strive, we battle, we fight to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's part of what it means, a big part of what it means to be a Christian. We are followers, disciples, servants of Jesus Christ. Christian friend, how's your spiritual battle going? 
you and I do realize and remember that that is the only battle that matters for eternity, right? And friend, if you do not know who you submit your thoughts to, whose battle you're fighting, I invite you, I urge you, hopefully with the meekness and gentleness of Christ, to carefully consider the power of the Scriptures and what we are reading even today. Test the truth. It will stand. In verse 6, Paul is basically drawing a line in the sand. Choose your side quickly because when I return, I will go after the false teachers who are adulterating the gospel and destroying the church. Paul had every righteous right and reason to protect the children of God. That's part of the battle. Praise the Lord for the men and women in our lives who are willing to fight to protect us, to save the lives of others, not, not with weapons of military warfare, not with guns and rockets, but with the armor and the word of God. And yes, we are extremely grateful for our country's military. Pray for our president and our armed forces. But verse 7, he says, You are looking at things as they are outwardly. There's mistake number one. Outward human focus. Physical focus. Temporal focus. Human focus. Self-focus. The truth is, it's not hard to do that. We all know that is our tendency. It is the most natural thing to do. But as soon as we bring God into the equation, that changes everything. Humanistic philosophy crumbles. Logic bows to the divine. Miracles become possible when our Heavenly Father, the Creator of all, steps into our worldview and into our lives, our spheres of influence. This is again why we must be in prayer and the study of God's Word. God's Word is the spiritual focus. It is the lens through which the Holy Spirit enables us to spiritually see the physical, to eternally view the temporal. And verse 7 continues, If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, pause there, we just had another major truth lesson. Number two, God calls us to build others up. We could camp out on this point for a long time. Another biblical, spiritual, eternal lens that Paul used to guide his teaching in the church and the defense of his ministry was the God-commissioned duty to edify, to build others up. The selfish heart of man says, the only way I can climb the ladder of success is by stepping on the heads of others. I hate to say it, but when others look worse, I look better. Those are such lies. What parent would think, the worse I make my kids look, the better I look as a parent? What businessman would say, the worse my employees look, the better I look as a CEO? And yet pride and selfishness function according to those standards. They make the mistake of tearing others down. Paul says, I'm not writing this letter to tear you down, but to build you up. He says, this is my calling from God. 
I'm an apostle to make you strong in the Lord. Oh, may that be our heart goal any time we enter into conflict with one another. And yes, it happens for all of us in the church, in our marriages, with our kids, with co-workers, neighbors, you name it. The goal of edification, of building the other one up, is a game changer because it's a focus changer, which leads to a very different approach. Paul continues in verse 8, I will not be put to shame, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Again, there's the accusation that Paul is inconsistent. Imagine how it must have felt to take these accusations. He, write bold, he writes bold letters, but he's pathetic in person. He's hiding behind his parchment. He's got a strong pen and a weak spine. He's a hypocrite. You can't trust him. How does one defend themselves against such accusations? We're looking at it. Verse 11. He says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. That is Paul outright refuting the accusation. And for the next couple of chapters, he's going to substantiate this claim. Verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Now, careful if you're taking notes. Paul bounces around a little here between the truth lessons and the mistakes. So I'm going to just put number three and four in both columns up here on the screen. Mistake number three, which we'll see in the next verse, is taking credit when other, for what others have achieved. Mistake number four, number four, which we see right here in verse 12, is self-measurement and commendation. Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Those of like mind who gather and pat each other's backs are of little significance. Those who build their own trophies prove nothing. The solution is in truth lessons number three and four. Here's number three. Credit where credit is due. Versus the mistake of taking credit for what others have achieved. It is so easy to assume credit for what God and others have accomplished in our lives. True gratitude, true humility, takes the time to very intentionally measure how others and God have contributed to our well-being and success. Paul addresses the mistake, specifically in regard to the false teachers who came into the church of Corinth and claimed to be super apostles. Verse 13, he says, But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. And here's where we ask the question, so where is credit due ultimately? Verse 17, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. 
Verse 18 gives us our final truth lesson for today. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Truth lesson number four. God's measurement and commendation are all that matter. In the end, they are all that matter. Let me just say it again. This is why it is so important to be diligent students of the Word of God. How can we accurately know what the heart attitudes and behaviors are that God commends apart from knowing His Word? How do we know the standard of measurement apart from what He tells us in the Scriptures? Judges 17.6 says, In those days there was no king over Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They approved themselves. And thousands of years later, people are still making the same mistake. This is why Paul told Timothy in the clearest of terms, in 2 Timothy 2.16, study, study to show yourself approved, uh, to show yourself, excuse me, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How noteworthy to see that approval of God and rightly dividing the word of truth are side by side in the text. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. In 21st century terms, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter what I think of myself. All that matters is what God says is truth. His approval is the only approval. That's why we must pay such careful attention when we read life-guiding verses like Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness justice and righteousness on earth for I delight in these things declares the Lord let's pray Heavenly Father we are so grateful for your indescribable gift the holy love of God that sacrificed Jesus his own perfect son to pay the price the penalty for our sins there is no greater love than that a man would lay down his life for his friends thank you Lord but you we know that your son not only died he came back to life and he conquered death and he offers the gift of eternal life to all those who will follow him Lord, give us understanding of these truths. If there are any here who do not understand the words of eternal life, I pray that they will search the Scriptures for themselves and that you will open their eyes 
to the greatest love story ever told. Lord, for those of us who do know you, help us to understand that we have only begun to understand and know the Lord God Almighty. Give us a passion and an urgency for studying the word so that every thought will be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Lord, let us hear truth. Let others hear truth, not only from our mouths, but from our lives. Give us an urgency, as we have seen over the past few weeks with the Gustafsons, with the Waldocks, an urgency for taking this wonderful, life-saving gift to others. Surely, if we have it and know it, we cannot help but share it. And Lord, as we consider these matters that Paul has brought to our attention of how to defend the gospel, how to defend oneself in the work of the Lord, help us to see the infinite value of the meekness and gentleness of Christ, the critical need to have an eternal and spiritual view of what is happening around us, so that you can perform extraordinary miracles through us. Perhaps not the healing of the lame or giving sight to the blind, but Lord, offering effectively the words of eternal life to those who do not know. Thank you for your love for us. And all God's people said, Amen.